there's a really great book I would recommend to all your readers. MIT produces more entrepreneurs than Stanford. I didn't realize that, but yeah, they're all engineers. So there's a book from the head of entrepreneurship called, it's like disciplined entrepreneurship. And they found 21 steps in six buckets of why startups have been successful and why some have failed. And we decided to follow that methodology to a T. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. And for everybody out there that's been listening to the almost 300 episodes we've done, we've never had a guest like this on the show before. It is an honor and a pleasure to introduce you all to Charlie Garcia. He's one of the managing partners at R360. I believe he is the founder of the organization, although I don't ever find that information anywhere. Charlie's with us. He's in Florida, but he lives in Denver. It is just a phenomenal opportunity to have him as a guest on the show, ladies and gentlemen. I encourage you to get your notepads out because this is going to be jam-packed with a ton of jewels and things that you can implement on your life because he has succeeded on so many different levels. Charlie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Jerome. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to be sitting at a table with Charlie and Halil at one of the masterminds that I was in last year. And it was, we were in Miami in December and we were going around the table, introducing ourselves. And Charlie said something along the lines of I'm building an organization of a thousand centimillionaires. And I said, centimillionaires, that's like a hundred million dollars. And he kind of looked at me and shook his head and was like, yeah, I mean, are you dense? Like, <laughs> it's a thousand centimillionaires. And I was like, how many are there? And he looked at, I asked his partner that, Halil, and Halil was like, Charlie, how many are there? And Charlie, without hesitation, said 25,000. And so for the life of me, I don't know many people that know many centimillionaires. I've met a couple of billionaires in my life. Because of Charlie, I've met even more billionaires and a few centimillionaires as a result of some of the things that we've been able to do over the past few months. But this thought of what is true generational wealth, and most of these folks are first-generation wealth creators, and to be able to build things at that level is just phenomenal. And so, Charlie, you have moved into a niche that I think so few people can even fathom this thought of having a net worth of a hundred million dollars or more. How did you get interested in it? Like most people, cause I, you didn't grow up wealthy, right? You built a financial services company and sold it and had some of the excess that we talk about regularly. What was it that got you to the place where you were like, these people need 
help and these are the problems that they need help with and i have the solution for those folks who are struggling with these challenges well you know interestingly enough you know when you hear the word centimillionaire i think you know someone said it's not it's what you know people have a different conception so we have about 114 members 13 did not graduate from college and six didn't graduate from high school yet they went on or maybe they were scarred by poverty trauma in their early life and they something clicked in their head that said i didn't i don't want to be poor and they went off and they created uh, great wealth a few of our members came from families whose parents went bankrupt and they lost everything and they were scarred by poverty you know early on and they created you know great wealth for me really what happened was i had been in the military and I had an entrepreneurial gene. And when I decided to become an entrepreneur, someone had said to me, Hey, do you know of this organization called YPO? No, never heard of the uh, president's organization. And then about two weeks later, someone said, Hey, there's this group called tech, which is now Vistage. And have you heard of that? And it turns out that YPO and Vistage both got started in the late fifties, early sixties. And it was a peer-to-peer -peer group of entrepreneurs like EO and others that helped you become a better chief executive officer. So I joined both of them, you know, it's kind of a glutton for punishment. And yeah. that experience was extremely helpful to me. And then when I had an exit, I left one of them because, you know, I really wasn't concerned anymore about being a good CEO. I didn't have a company. I stayed in the other just because it was a lot deeper. And then I joined another peer-to-peer -peer group, which was Tiger 21, which is if you had created 10 million in wealth, join this group and you'll become a better investor. And I joined that group for about eight years and I learned a ton from others about investing in all these different asset classes globally. But then what was important to me was my family. I have four, three girls, a uh, boy. I have two grandkids now. I have a wife. I have a mother, brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. And the question became that, you know, when I die, I'm going to be judged by how did I make people feel yeah. and what impact did I have in the world? And so, you know, I was serving on a lot of these national boards using my superpowers to, you know, women empowerment. I have three daughters and the Girl Scouts, all of my daughters were Girl Scouts. It's a great organization that helped them. So imagine a board of 30, 28 women and two men. And I'm one of those men on the board for three years. I really care about entrepreneurship. So I'm on the national board of junior achievement that's in 22,000 schools, teaching kids financial literacy, work readiness, and how to become entrepreneurs. Both those organizations been around a hundred years and I'm on a lot of other boards. I'm on a board trying to revolutionize public high school education in America, and we're having great success. So I meet with my four children with a simple question which was as a father, what have I done well with you specifically? 
And what are opportunities to do even better? And without exception, my four kids said, you know, hey, dad, we really admire you. You're out there saving the world. You're doing all these things in the community, in the world, nationally. But what about me? Like, when was the last time we went one-on-one -on, -one on a vacation together? For that matter, when was the last time we went on a family vacation together? And what I realized is I was so busy living my life purpose and using my gifts for the benefit of others. I wasn't being the father, husband, the son, the brother, the uncle that I should be. So I decided to get off all my boards and focus on my family. And I thought, you know, how many other people have been these super entrepreneurs created great wealth and are in the same position. And I think at the end of the day, I'm going to be judged by the humans that I'm responsible for that I left behind. And I believe that everything in my universe is caused by me because I'm a strong person. And if somebody fails or something fails, or I have a failure, I don't blame it on other people. I think, what is it about me that this happened? I created this. And of course, the only person that you can really change in the world is yourself. And we're only here to work on ourselves, but the way that I show up will certainly influence other people's behaviors. And when you have four kids, you know, it's like, dad, I've heard that one. Yeah, dad, I heard that one too. And unlike your employees that if they don't do what you say, you can let go, you know, you're kind of an indentured servant to your kids, your spouse, your family. So you have to learn to lead them. And I came up with this concept that at a hundred million and above, you're leading what I call a family enterprise. And it's as complex or more complex than an operating business because you have family members that you have to get to move in a certain way, but you really have to get a lot of deep knowledge about what makes each of those individuals tick. What is their life purpose? What are their goals? What are their fears and how you can help them? And then a lot of it, and I'm still working on this is you have to deprogram them because you've shown up a certain way your whole life. You can't expect your kids or other people to all of a sudden show up differently with you because the only thing in their mind is whatever pain you may have caused them in the past that you're trying to get over because of the way that you showed up or how they get love from you and how they show up to get that love from you. And sometimes that dynamic is not healthy. So unraveling all that and getting self-awareness and empathy. So I thought, why don't we approach individuals that have created uh, great wealth and then unite people by common values? So selfishly, I was also running a peer-to-peer -peer group with about a thousand social entrepreneurs in 34 countries. And the one thing that I could never figure out is the funding part. Like they had created a social enterprise that had already proven themselves, but they didn't know how to scale. And a lot of that had to do with, they didn't know how to raise money. And I thought if I could get a thousand humans that had over a hundred million of wealth and our average 
in the system now of the 114 members is 400 million. If we could get them on a philanthropic platform working together. So if you had six people in the world that wanted to use their families and their resources to take plastics out of the ocean, I could imagine them working together and having 10x impact because they are working together. So I think selfishly, you know, I wrote a, a eulogy that I was going to touch 3 billion humans on the planet before I die in a positive way. And there's no possible way I could do that by myself. So if I had a thousand people globally, with an average net worth of 400 million, then certainly I could probably make that happen. So that's really how R360 came about. And also really when I was 50 years old, I discovered my life purpose, which is to inspire and connect others to achieve extraordinary things. It takes three of my God-given gifts and R360 fits that like a glove because you're going to be happy when you can take your passion and your purpose into the workplace. And I wrote a book, a message from Garcia, where I made a mistake in that I said that success is finding your calling in life and having the courage to follow it. But I, it was all about passion, find your passion. Well, the mistake that I made is that passion is internal. These are things that give you energy. I like to race cars. I like to surf. I like to do barbecues with friends and family. I like to play bridge. I like to read. I like to write. I like to teach. Those things are things that I'm very passionate about and they give me energy. But purpose is external. Purpose are what are your God-given gifts and how are you using those gifts that were bestowed on you that make you unique? You're one of 8 billion. How are you using them for the benefit of others, the benefit of your family, the benefit of your community, your state, your country, and the world? So basically, I'm passionate about the work that I do, and also it's my life purpose. So it really, R360 really fits, and we believe that wealth is more than money. And we believe that real wealth is something we call fishes. You know, they say you give a man a fish, you feed him for the day, teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And the fishes that we teach our families to master are financial capital, yes, but also intellectual capital, social capital, human capital, emotional capital, and spiritual capital. And so I am kind of, you know, like the Pope has a ring and it's two fish because Jesus was a fisher of men and the Pope is a fisher of men. And I'm a fisher of families that are uber entrepreneurs, although 20% of our members now are second or third gen that want to use their wealth, their resources, their entrepreneurial mojo for the benefit of humanity and the health of our planet. So if I can find them, send them to a membership committee that I'm not on that agree, and they become members, then it's about helping them, helping their families, and then getting them to collaborate together 
and then tying them to this other organization that has a thousand social entrepreneurs globally that have already proven their model. And I'm telling our members, don't like recreate something when there's already people out there in the world that are doing things that you are already passionate about in your family, you can make a substantial gift to them, get on their board and coach them, mentor them, become a, a philanthropic venture capitalist, which is a hell of a lot of fun. Find five or six nonprofits that you can make, not a $10,000 gift, but like a $2 million gift, something that's going to change their world and then help them over a period of maybe three years, double, triple, quadruple their impact by helping them out and bringing like common sense, you know, business skills to their nonprofit and be a coach and a mentor. So that's a long-winded way to say of how I ended up, you know, doing what I'm doing, but it, it really started with kind of simple questions to my kids. Well, that internal reflection allowed you to solve a problem, which then put you in a position that helps other people solve that exact same problem. Cause you had to realize you weren't the only one that was experiencing it. Talk about some courage to ask your children how you did. I, I see people struggle with that one. And also to ask the romantic partner, how they're doing. Cause a lot of times we get all these accolades, we get all this flattery out in the world and the people at home don't think we're a superhero. Uh, they don't think that we're doing a great job and they get to see all the warts and all of the discoloration and all the other things that isn't as well polished before we go out into the world. And so kudos to you think, for having that courage. Yeah. And I think what I've learned though, is the time to ask the question is not when things are going really bad. Okay. You have to ask it when it's going really well. And, you know, it's always a dangerous thing. You're with your significant other and things are going well, and you're going to ask a question that could bring the energy really down, but that's the time to do it because when things aren't going well, now you have all this emotion that's negative, that has a negative impact on their response. But if they're saying to you, Hey, Jerome, I love you. You're the best human being in the world. I'm so happy to be with you. And then. You say, I really appreciate that, but I want to be better for you. Like, just tell me, because I really would like some reinforcement over what is making you feel that way. And Hey, what are things I can do to step up my game? And if you're saying it that way, where it's not like, tell me what I've been doing wrong, but tell me what I'd be doing right. Let's start with that. So I can do more of that for you. And sometimes we don't even recognize it because the love language of our partners are things that kind of, but they say, when you did this, when you did this, you're like, really? That's all I have to do to make you feel like, you know, and that conversation is super important. And even with my spouse, I've had to train and say, hey, this may not mean a lot to you, but when you do these things, it really makes me feel connected to you. And they may seem insignificant to you, but for me, they're huge, maybe because the way I grew up or something that was lacking in my own life, my own baggage. So if you don't ask the question, how, how the heck are you going to find out what to do? And, our, and I have four kids that are 
totally different. You've met, I think you've met one of them, Sterling, and he's the quietest of the bunch. He's super quiet. He's an introvert. So to get him to really express his feelings, you got to push him. But, you know, they give you a roadmap of how to maximize their output. And that's ultimately what you want to be happy. I love that. I love that. So you mentioned this and you condensed what I think are decades of work into three words. You said, I had an exit. And then you moved on to the rest of the story. Can we talk about what you built and what you exited from just so that listeners get an understanding of like you built the business before you started doing a peer-to-peer mentorship thing? Because there's so many people who kind of... And I, you know, I went to a military academy, the Air Force Academy. So I had to serve six years in the military. So the first decision I had to make at some point was, do I stay in the military and try to do a 20 year career, become a general or do something, or should I leave and do something else? And, and that decision is always a very painful, difficult one because, you know, when you're in the military. You're an officer, everything's taken care of for you. Every three years you're being assigned somewhere and you don't have really much to worry about. And if you stay in for 20 years, as many of my classmates have done, you're going to get a paycheck for the rest of your life and, you know, retirement in in your forties, it's a pretty good gig, but I decided to, you know, leave all of that because I thought I could serve in a different way and I ended up leaving and going to law school at Columbia, thinking that was really my path. And after doing a few internships, one in Eastern Europe and Hungary, and then one in Miami for very large law firms, I determined that law was a business and that there was better ways to make money than every six minutes writing down a client number that some client you were thinking about and charging them, you know, whatever your rate is. So when I was in law school, I started several businesses while I was in law school and I just caught the entrepreneurial bug. You know, they say that 10% of Americans have an entrepreneurial gene. Not everybody has it. And a lot of people have accumulated a ton of wealth by staying in corporate America, being like yourself, you know, running major divisions, getting stock options, and eventually having that great retirement and a bunch of stock options. But in my case, I didn't like being told what to do with the military. I was always the youngest. I was working for four-star generals that became mentors of mine. A lot of my, all my success really has been having amazing mentors that I learned a ton of from. Being super curious, the academy taught me how to speed read so I can read a book in three hours. So I read a ton. And whenever I want to do something, I say, let me find four people who've already done what I want to do. Let me read their books if they have them, or let me reach out to them and figure out how I can talk to them and get some wisdom from them. Because my grandfather said something I'll never forget when I was younger. He said, when you learn to shave, Try to learn on someone else's face first, you know, and, and I think a lot of your guests, 
that listen to your 300 podcast are probably in the same vein, like, Hey, by listening to Jerome's interviews, I'm going to learn one or two things, hopefully from the people he interviews that I can take and apply in my own life. So when I was in law school, my father had a very complicated relationship with Pat suddenly at the age of 61. And that was a destabilizing force in my life at the time. And I decided, and then I also got married one year before I got married on my second year of law school. And then my daughter was literally born on the day that I graduated from law school. My oldest daughter, who now has two grandkids. So there I am. And my father had died. I was going to work for a law firm in Miami and I had a clerkship with the judge and my father-in-law who had been in a motorcycle gang and he was headed either to jail or he was going to be very successful. And he had started two companies that were now public that he ran. He had international operations and he said, look, I have six lawyers working for me. You don't want to be a lawyer. Come work for me and you'll get an MBA in the school of hard knocks. And both of his sons who worked for him left on bad terms, didn't talk to their dad for a year. Both advised me not to do it. My wife told me not to do it, but I did it anyways, because I said, you know, my dad just died. He was a tough son of a bitch. There's no possible way that I'm going to run into someone tougher than him. And all I want to do is learn. So what do I have to lose? And it was exactly the right decision. And like anything else, I learned a lot of great things and I learned a lot of negative things not to do. And after three years working with him, the reason that I set up my company that brought me wealth is that I found an acquisition from a buddy of mine at Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns still existed. This was 1997. And there was a Brazilian bank that had a broker dealer and they wanted to give up their broker dealer and Bear Stearns International wanted to buy it. So my friend at Bear says, Hey, you should buy this. This would be a great. And there was a team of Bear Stearns in London trying to buy it, but I think you could buy it instead. And I put together a plan on what to do with it. And I presented it to my father-in-law and he said, great opportunity, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to buy it and do this, that, and the other. And that's when I said, no, I don't think so. And I put together the capital. I borrowed money. Interestingly, one of his sons was my biggest investor and my mother and other friends and family made money. I think, you know, maybe the son thought it was a good idea for me not to be so close to his father. And he made me promise that I would never tell the father that he was an investor. And I offered it to my father-in-law to join. And he says, I can't invest in something I don't believe in. But okay. So I went off and I created a company that became the fastest growing company in Florida two years in a row, eighth fastest growing company in America. We had 60 offices in eight countries when I sold it in 2006 to a public company. And that was my first exit. We raised about, I would say 50 million for the company over from 1997 to call it 2005. I had a great board, the chairman of my board, Max Chapman, 
had been the CEO of uh, Kinder Peabody when it got bought by Nomura. He then bought, became the president of Nomura USA, first American to be on the a Japanese board. And he was the vice chairman of the Amex. He had been a former Marine. He had like 10% body fat and he was like 65. And he had a collection of airplanes of like, war. he was a great guy. And anyway, I put together a really great board, great people. And I had a lot of ups and downs, like every entrepreneur and radical changes in the business of finance happened from 97 to 2006 that were crazy, but it's how I really made my, my wealth. And I really kind of semi-retired in 2006 to 2008 when I sold my business. And so you exited all with one check up front or did you have to earn out? Like, how'd you structure Yes. That? So big mistake. I did not negotiate an all cash deal. And when you get bought by a public company and part of the payment is in stock, you better be in a company that is really good. And of course, 08 hit and we were clearing Bear Stearns and Bear Stearns disappeared. So a lot of negative things happened that I learned, but you know, I was a great investor and I'd made a lot of money also. We were an investment bank. So every time you raise money for companies, you get warrants, which are like a lottery ticket and a couple of those lottery tickets paid off. So, and then I was also, so a lot of things happened, but yes, I took a uh, part cash and part stock. And then the other thing that because they were buying people, it was about 400 brokers, part of the sale price was put in escrow. And they said, look, here's a formula. So let's look at two years from now. If this is what it looks like, you'll get a hundred percent or you'll get 50% based on these metrics, which incentivized me to make sure that the thing happens properly. It was integrated. It was a very difficult two years for me, because when you're an entrepreneur and now you're part of a public company running a subdivision and you got all this corporate bureaucracy, you got to deal with. Those things are never easy going from running the show and being the, the king of the mountain to now being an employee, you know, you know what it's like being in a big company, running a division. That's what basically happened. And then you get all this corporate bureaucracy you got to deal with. So, yeah, so that's kind of my, you know, story in terms of the exit and what I'm doing now, I'm never going to exit. I mean, I created a company. You know, YPO has been around in Vistage since the late fifties and a hundred years from now, I want R360 to be around, which is why we're a partnership, like a law firm. And we have like 40 partners that own like 1% each. So it's really diverse. And, you know, this is a cash flow play. This is about creating a profitable entity that will reinvest those profits into creating a great experience for the members so that we can change the world together. This is not about creating a business that's going to be bought by somebody else that was embedded in the, in everything that I did. Now that doesn't mean I couldn't die tomorrow and my heirs may come in and do something different, but my wishes are very clear as to what I want to happen. 
with this organization. Now, there's a bunch of people out there who are on the front side of an exit and they're thinking about exiting and they're aware of what we call the founder's exit paradox, which is all the feelings you have around decoupling from the enterprise that you built. Right. But they're all very interested in that moment where they have the check in hand or the wire hits their account and they yeah. have more money than they've ever seen in their life. And they're thinking about how they're going to celebrate, whether it's the car, the watch, the vacation, whatever they're going to do to celebrate. What did you do? How'd you celebrate? I didn't have that experience because, you know, again, like I just said, you know, you get this check and you get the money, but money never really drove me. Money was really just a scorecard, but now I'm in a public company for two years. Yeah. So I think in retrospect, I would have negotiated a lower sales price and I would have 100% left and exited, not had the pressure of, you know, Results. a quarter of the sale price I could lose because it's sitting in escrow and I have to continue to work for two years to make this successful. I could have negotiated something different where I could have taken you know, a lower price to make up for that, you know, uncertainty and completely walked away. And those two years of my life, I would have had back and I could have done different things, but I felt the responsibility to the employees and all that stuff to be in the senior management and, and make this thing work. And then also, you know, I took some time off, you know, I never took vacations. I worked all the time. So I really took about 30 days, traveled around the world and just really thought about, you know, what's next. Uh, I decided to write a book. I wrote a book that was published in 2009 and I started it around that time frame. My second book. Was this vacation after the two years or did you sell vacation no, then two years? It was at, right after the sale before going into the, this new entity. You know, I took some time off, but I didn't figure out my life purpose until about 2011. So my advice to everyone is to really understand what your God-given gifts are. What is your life purpose? So you can easily pivot to what's next. And, you know, I've read a lot of white papers and things that it says it takes about seven years on average for someone that has sold their company to find and really be happy about their next, next thing. I also never forget meeting a guy who was 65, but he didn't look a day over 40. And he told me that he had built this big toy company and that he and his partner sold it for a lot of money. And at the age of like 48, he decided to retire, never work again. His partner went into a new startup, a new business, and 18 months later had a heart attack and died. And this guy that I just met that didn't look a day over 40 was off to his grandkids like baseball games and he was playing golf and he was enjoying himself. And he said, look, once you get to a certain amount of money, you know, it's like, I don't spend more than X a year. I'm never going to spend more than X a year because that's my personality. So why am I going to create all this stress? And, have, and create more wealth and more money that I can't spend. Why don't I just have a good time with the friends and family 
that I have now and lead a really happy life. And I ran in that guy in Boca Raton and it really had an impact on my thinking of, you know, I don't want to be, there's some guys in our 360, our oldest members, 85. And if I told you what he does on a daily basis and the businesses that he owns, it would make your head spin. It makes my head spin. It gives me a headache, but that's his personality. And he will die, you know, buying a brand new, I think he's buying his second bank. It's like, why are you in the banking business? Why not? I mean, it's an opportunity. party. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, AKA the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so that's not my personality. I don't want to be that person, but I get it and I respect it. And there's some people that just have to be busy because that's their, their, their passion. But I'm really now focused on my immediate family and my nieces and nephews, my mother, my own family, and using my superpowers to make sure that they're okay. Now, you have this assessment that people can go through. Yes. And I don't think it speaks directly to passion, but it speaks to kind of what makes them tick. And so yep. can we talk a little bit about the archetypes that your sure. assessment has? And then I guess we'll kind of sure. so back side of that. I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, behavioral analytics. I taught two years at MIT, the predictive index, which they developed during World War II because they were losing a lot of air crews and pilots. You and I graduated from pilot school, tied for top of the class. And they're like, okay, what do you want to be? A bomber pilot or a fighter pilot? You say bomber pilot, I say fighter pilot, but our personalities don't fit that. And if you put the wrong personality in the wrong plane, you're going to have problems. So when this assessment figured that out, the deaths and air crews that were losing kind of dropped by 90%. So I've been using different personality assessments because the number one skill of a leader is self-awareness. You have to understand what makes you tick and your superpowers, it's like a coin, are great for you, but maybe my superpowers are going to drive you crazy, Jerome, because you and I are built so different. So the second skill of a leader that's most important is empathy. So you have to have empathy for how others are built, your spouse, your children. And if you want to maximize their potential, you have to approach people, you know, differently. So one of the assessments that we created at R360 with the help of a few PhDs in organizational psychology, because it didn't exist, was I was looking for an assessment that, hey, if you have a hundred million dollars, and you were about legacy, 
and what legacy you were going to leave behind. I wanted this assessment focused on that. So there's five different archetypes. I'm an Olympian seeker. There's only six of us Olympian seekers of 114 in R360. You could be an Olympian adventurer, a sage. You could be different things. My wife is a altruist sage. So the assessment, which is free to the public, you can go to our website, r360global.com, takes about 15 minutes. You can take it and you're going to get like a 10 page output and we're a combination of all five. So we have, but there's things that are going to dominate your personality and it's more that it's more than a behavioral assessment because this is really about, you know, if you want to, you know, imagine you have a foundation with a billion dollars and you, your spouse and your four kids have a family meeting to decide what you're going to do with it. Well, guess what? Each one of you has a different conception of what legacy and impact is. So this assessment really helps you with that. And no one's going to want to work together if all they're going to do are dad's things, because the things that my kids are interested in are very different than mine. And if you want to work as a family philanthropically, you have to get enough of everybody's so that you're doing at least one thing from each person that really is passionate. And then hopefully they'll also get passionate about the things that I want to do. Just like I've gotten passionate over crazy things that my kids want to do, but hey, it's what drives them, you know? So you have to respect that. So the five archetypes are sage, seeker, Olympian. Altruist and adventurer. And an adventure. adventure. We're all a combination of those. Did you come up with this when you were doing your thing at Harvard or was yes. this after? Yes. I, I decided to take a year off and my spouse and I went to an advanced leadership fellowship at Harvard. I liked it that you could bring your spouse. Harvard has 12 colleges and imagine you can take any class at any of the 12 colleges. Oh, and oh, by the way, you can take classes at MIT also. Oh, and by the way, you have to do your homework. Yes. You do get called on a lot because they want to bring that real world experience into the classroom, but no exams and no papers. You're there just to learn. So I took, you know, classes at the medical school, the divinity school, the business school, the education school, the engineering school. And then I taught at MIT for two years because I signed up for a class and the professor had read my book and said, no, you, you should be teaching this class with me. And you don't, you know, there's only 40 spots, 250 kids apply for 40 spots. You don't want to take one of their spots. Why don't you come teach it with me? So that's how I ended up teaching for two years at, at MIT because I was trying to take a course. So yeah. So the whole concept of. R360 happened during that year because they have a venture incubation program in the summer. My wife is like, of course, all of our classmates are going on vacation, but you are applying to Harvard's and MIT's venture incubation program. And I said, honey, 133 teams are applying, only 20 are selected. So the chance of my getting selected anyway are very slim. 
course, I got selected and I ended up staying there all summer working with two professors from Harvard, two from MIT and 10 students. And we interviewed over a hundred individuals of great wealth and figured out what was missing. And we filed, there's a really great book I would recommend to all your readers. MIT produces more entrepreneurs than Stanford. I didn't realize that, but yeah, they're all engineers. So there's a book from the head of entrepreneurship called, it's like disciplined entrepreneurship. And they found 21 steps in six buckets of why startups have been successful and why some have failed. And we decided to follow that methodology to a T. And there was another book called Talking to Humans, which is really written for engineers, but it's a great book because it forces you with whatever idea that you have to prototype it and to show it to potential clients and really get honest feedback before you go and spend all this money doing stuff. So those two analytical approaches with two professors from Harvard and uh, MIT and 10 students, we completed the whole process and came out. And then during the pandemic, I ended up raising about $15 million, unbelievably. My wife thought I was crazy to launch R360. So in the middle of the pandemic, you know, who would have thought, but that's really when it happened. And when the pandemic ended, it's really when we launched R360. Charlie, this has been mind blowing. All the stuff that we've covered and your amazing journey from growing up to going into the military, to leaving that certainty and I guess confidence that a lot of people behind have. Because, you know, you made it, right? You got into the academy. And I mean, that trajectory on the backside of the academy is pretty well set for folks who do the things that they're supposed to do. And then to get some mentors that are at a higher level in the organization only helps to make that a little, that future more certain. And you could have took that path and been done at 40 and had a paycheck for the rest of your life and great health insurance and some of the other things. My dad did that, right? He didn't go to the academy. He was an enlisted man, but you know, he was able to retire at 38 and then, you know, he started a second career as another, as a post in the post office, as a civil servant still, but it's really cool that you said, no, one, I don't like people to tell me what to do Two, I can serve bigger, right? I can do more. And, you know, thank you for your service. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, but not just for your military service, but your service to humanity, the thought of putting resources with people who are ready to do the work is the biggest challenge, right? All the people who want to do the work resent having to go raise capital. The people who have the capital have a hard time figuring out where to allocate that capital because they're not going to use their time to do the stuff, but their capital can do a whole lot of work if put with the right resources. And so you're bridging that gap in addition to helping people realize it's not just about another zero in the account or adding that to your net worth. It's about the impact that you make. And you talked about the way people feel and then also focusing on family and improving the relationships that you have there and truly taking inventory on, did you do that job well, or did you just go out and be famous in the community and have all those people admire you? Meanwhile, the people that are closest to you see all of the flaws and the faults. I like to wrap up 
the podcast with two questions. The first sure. one being, who do you think should be a guest on this show? I mean, you've got a vast network from people in philanthropy to high net worth to, I mean, you did some stuff on the education board, if I'm not mistaken, at one point in Florida. So, I mean, you can reach into a bunch of different pockets. And we, when we have great guests, we want to get new great guests from the guests that we had on the show. And so is there somebody that you think should be a, a guest on the Dreamcatchers podcast? Well, if you haven't had, you know, Bobby Castro as a guest, then he's somebody that you know that I would definitely have as a guest because he dropped out of high school in ninth grade mm-hmm. and he, you know, failed in three or four businesses and then, you know, went on to have a billion dollar exit. And so he's a great guy to interview. There's another gentleman that did not graduate from college, ran away from his home at the age of 16 or 17. And now is probably 40 years old. He'll be a billionaire soon. And uh, his name's Don Wenner. He lives in St. Augustine. Both of these folks have written books. Don, multiple books. Upsiders is the book that Bobby has written. And then the, the other person who I genuinely like and now is mentoring entrepreneurs, loves entrepreneurship, is Angel Alvarez. So I like Angel a lot. I'm an MF Angel's party. great man. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, we do a, a life story, a film documentary on the life of each member. And I asked his mother, who's 97, who's 95 when I interviewed Esperanza, Cuban. His parents immigrated from Cuba to Miami. And I said, What? I mean, how does it feel to have a son who's one of the wealthiest men in America? What? My son? Nobody ever tells me anything. And if I had to pick one of my five children, he'd be the last I would pick. And it was so funny because it was a three-hour interview, but in the documentary, maybe six minutes of it. But Angel said that he and his four siblings had the funnest time watching that three-hour interview because before I went to interview the mom, like, ask her this, ask her this, ask her. Like, she lives 10 minutes away. Why don't you ask her? says, no, mom, like, won't talk about any of this stuff with us. But if you scratch that and she doesn't know you, she'll get into it. And, uh, I, I decided two hours of the interview was in Spanish because I'm fluent in Spanish and the last hour was in English, but he would be great because he worked in a big company in corporate America. And, and then with the help of his brother acquired a little small company and this vision that he had, that he presented to this big company, they poo-pooed it and said, no, that'll never work. And he ended up buying a small company and doing exactly that. He had an exit of a billion six and he came from a very poor family. The only reason he went to college is because somebody told his mom that if she was an employee of the university of Miami, that he'd get free education. So he and his brother didn't have to pay for, for school. So. And, you know, he's had some unfortunate things happen to him. His beautiful wife died in March, four years ago. He has three daughters, but he'd be a great guest because now he is helping young entrepreneurs, the University of Miami become successful. So I would say those three individuals, the other person that's truly amazing. There was a woman named Brittany Turner, 35 years old. She did not go to college either. At the age of 19, she was living out of her car 
and, and she wanted to be a missionary, but didn't like raising money. So said, I'm going to have to make money and start a business. And she got into real estate. And then the one place she wanted to compete was where nobody in real estate wanted to be. And that's the poorest neighborhoods in America where she would go in and revamp them and completely change the community and use her negotiating skills with drug traffickers and other things to really change those, those mm. communities. And she made a goal to R Richard Branson bought his island in the British Virgin Islands when he was 29. So she wanted to do the same thing and she bought hers when she was 28. And uh, soon thereafter, a hurricane came, demolished the property, but she rebuilt it and she now helps women and entrepreneurs and things like that. She's, I redid my eulogy because of her. We were at R360 and we had this question we picked from a deck of cards and it was like, well, what's your morning routine? And she'd start going through her morning routine and she kind of glossed over, oh, I read my eulogy every day and then I do this, that, what? You do what? I read my eulogy. It's like, well, if you read it today, you must have it on you. Why don't you read it to us? And her eulogy was not a bunch of accomplishments. It's how did I make people feel, which is all people are going to remember about you and what impact did I have in the world? And she rewrites it every year in January and then reads it every day because she also has a 10 year a five-year and a one-year plan. And she looks at her calendar and if her calendar week to week, she doesn't feel is moving to that one, five, 10, 20 year plan, then she blows it up. And what keeps her focus is her eulogy because all she's doing is she's manifesting a reality by training her subconscious mind. So I rewrote my eulogy, by the way, and it, took me four months because it's aspirational. I said, Hey, I'm going to die at, at 101. Well, what am I going to do for the next 40 years? And then when I wrote it, I gave it to my four kids, my mother, my wife, and they had all kinds of edits. So I had to get their edits. And, and it's, if you read my eulogy, it's 80% family, 20% like you know, R360, it's 10 page team pet. So, but R360 is one sentence in 10 pages, you know, and it's really about a platform that allowed me to have this massive impact on humanity is really all that R360 for me is ultimately about. I am using my gifts to help individuals and their families flourish and in exchange. They are using their wealth and their superpowers to solve some of the world's most intractable problems. And they wouldn't necessarily be doing it. Some of them without my help, even, you know, a guy like Angel will tell you, I spent my whole life accumulating wealth. I wasn't philanthropic along the way. Now I created this nonprofit, but emotionally very, very difficult for him to give money away because he spent so much time accumulating it. So. Helping individuals like angels and others go and, and I help. One of my things is I help, I hired a coach and it took me a year to discover my life purpose, a year. And I paid that coach 5,000 a month for 12 months. So I have helped eight people, including angel, 
discover their life purpose. And there's a series of 13 exercises that we go through in order to get there. But at the end of the day, it's very powerful when you know your values, you know your purpose, because any opportunity comes to you and you can immediately decide, do you want to spend your non-refundable minutes, as my good friend Bobby Castro says, on that? So when you approach me with this podcast, it went through my values, it went through things that I'm passionate about and went through my purpose. And I said, yes, check mark. If one person can get something of value, and of course, a lot of this are in several of my books, a message from Garcia or leadership lessons of the White House fellows, you can read those. And for that second book, I interviewed 220 White House fellows, including Colin Powell, many really cool people. And I distilled their lessons into the book and I put it out into the world, just try to help people, which is why I'm here because hopefully people in your audience, but I'm happy to make those introductions. Okay, uh, great. Uh, you know, Thank send you. me, send me an email that says, Hey, I really appreciated yep. you being on my podcast. You just focused on X, Y, and Z. And I will take that and then connect you with some of these people you've already met. But some you haven't, like probably Brittany, who's between her island and in North Carolina, but she'd be amazing for you. She also has a huge social media following. So I'm sure she'll be promoting any podcasts that she does with you throughout her network. But she's an incredible human and she's made her life mission to end human trafficking and violence against women. That's her big cause and her, she's been married for a few years, has a new little boy. Her husband was a 20 year Green Beret sniper. He's a great guy. Uh, Jeremy Locke, he's in my book. Their, their boy's name is Bear Danger. <laughs> so Bear Danger is one of the uh, call signs of one of the Navy SEALs in this thriller that I'm writing. This was phenomenal, man. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You're welcome. I the listeners, I know they got a ton from this, whether it's just to remind them of things that they've already known, but maybe put away or got exposure to things that they didn't even know was possible. Thank you so much. And hopefully we can help you touch a few of those 3 billion that you're going to impact before you hit 101. Yeah, you're very welcome. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.